Hello and welcome to the Veg Lease Podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Veg Lease and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Kazakhstan held parliamentary elections on March 19th, the latest step in what Kazakh President Kasim Zomart Nikayev says is part of the process of creating a new Kazakhstan. But the old problem of labor strikes and labor disputes remain. And when unemployed oil workers from the western city of Zhanaozen made their way to the capital, Astana, on April 9th, Kazakh authorities dealt with the issue in the same old way. What do the recent demonstrations in Astana tell us about new Kazakhstan? To discuss all this, I am joined by Asel Tutum Ru, lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at Near East University in Nicosia, and Luca Ancescu, professor of Central Asia Studies at Glasgow University. Thank you both for being on the program. And Asel, let's start with you. What can you tell us about what happened with the Janos and oil workers who came to Astana? What did they want and how did officials respond? Well, it's not the first time that they are coming. Last year, they were also um, uh, organizing a similar type of action where they came to the Ministry of Energy uh, and camped there. And the Ministry of Energy managed to solve their uh, problem. Particularly, they arrived on April 10th, uh, not they, but the, specifically the workers of uh, Berali Mangastal, which is a relatively smaller drilling company, uh, drilling and oil service company, that uh, won the bid uh, from Ozen Gas uh, to conduct um, operations for a year. Uh, they won the bid in August, and it's a relatively kind of grassroots company where the oil workers managed to come together. They bought the new equipment and organized the company, got the license, and uh, they were very happy that in August uh, they were able to get the contract, they, which was relatively small. Uh, it included uh, about four uh, different places and equal to about uh, one million, if I'm uh, over a million, uh, over uh, one million dollar, uh, I guess, um, uh, operations. And then what happened is that uh, during the new economic year, year in April, uh, they were informed in March uh, that they've lost the bid. And this particular bid went to their rivals, uh, which is the Kesby company and another company that was just recently registered and no one really knew about it. And uh, Kesby is a, a, a much bigger company, although not as big, for example, as uh, uh, Ozen Munagas's uh, own service company. But they won it. And uh, as a result of that, uh, about 180 workers were unemployed. Uh, so they uh, decided to go to the Ministry of Energy and do the same thing again, where they would actually camp in front of the energy uh, Ministry of Energy and try to attract attention so that their problems are going to be solved. Um, unfortunately, for, during the first day, the nobody from the ministry came out to them. The Minister of Energy basically said that, well, they are doing a hype, uh, so it's all... Uh, they're trying to attract the, the hype. Uh, and uh, because they are conditions uh, and claims are not necessarily consistent. So the minister basically thought that it's not, there is no reason to actually step in there. So uh, indeed, the, the claims were not necessarily focused. Initially, they wanted to be the bid, uh, initial bid to be uh, revised uh, to see if uh, there were indeed violations or not. And then the second thing, uh, later on, when many more workers joined them the next day, uh, they wanted uh, to get employment in Ozen Munagas, which is, a, as I said, a relatively large company, and it has a waiting list of nearly 
according to different sources, including Orda uh, KZ, uh, 9,000 uh, people uh, are on that list uh, to be employed. And uh, then uh, Kasbuna Gas representative came out to them saying that, well, we can offer you this employment in Kesby, the company that current company that won the bid, and we can potentially uh, have some other people working in another company. But uh, nonetheless, it didn't really satisfy the workers. And in the evening of April 11th, uh, the uh, security forces, they rounded up people, cleaned up the site uh, and uh, took them to the police stations. Uh, so they were kept uh, at the police stations. Um, and when people in Janowski heard that, uh, about from 1,000 to 2,000 people came out in the central square. Uh, they were all organized and peaceful. Uh, same, the reports were happening that uh, a lot of people were also gathering in Uralsk and Aktau uh, to support Janowski workers. Uh, and uh, by midnight, the Akim the, uh, of Mangastau region came out to them and said, uh, you know, we're working on uh, uh, solving the problem. So please, uh, if you can, you can actually leave um, and so on. And in the morning of the 12th, uh, different videos started to appear where the Janauzian workers are basically saying, OK, we left uh, 10 uh, activists there and we're coming home. Uh, the government organized a train ride for them and people were basically uh, dismissed. It was a tense moment. Uh, because, as usual, uh, government turned off internet in Janozien and in the in parts of uh, Astana. Uh, so people were again preparing for uh, bloody Kantar events, so deja vu of that. But uh, apparently today, so far, the situation has been handled. Uh, we uh, Negotiations continue, but uh, at least uh, people are no longer on the squares. Uh, so that's what has been happening, uh, and uh, the re the the the, the re re reliving this moment uh, of uh, no information and uh, internet block uh, blackout uh, was indeed uh, very terrifying for for many people. Uh, since uh, Janozin workers were arrested in the evening, and nobody really heard what is happening, and uh, information came uh, from the um, information from police forces came relatively late. Okay, thanks, Estelle. And I just want to, uh, before I let you go, I wanted to do a little follow-up. We're talking about the Jano Zen oil workers, but but even since parliamentary elections, they're not the only oil workers that have, have been out on uh, demonstrating. Is this correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, the demonstrations have been happening relatively uh, regularly in Jano Zen, and uh, it's the only way for them to acquire some kind of, to, to make their voices, voices heard. Apparently, the... Uh, the protests uh, allow these people to uh, get to the to Akims, uh, uh, get to the uh, get to the officials who are responsible for making decisions over employment and over social and welfare pay payments in general. Um, so that's uh, that's the, the the only way for them to do that. Unfortunately, because the labor unions have been put under control and uh, uh, legally there is no not much room for them to to fight for their rights except for the mass strikes. Okay, thank you, um, Luca. When you see the videos that, that came out of uh, Astana just a couple of days ago of the workers outside the building and the police moving in on them and circling them and, and actual fighting breakout, uh, yeah, wh what do you think? What do you think about that? I mean, what does that say about President Takayev and his his second republic or new Kazakhstan? Well, he, he says that 
pretty much there is no such thing as a second republic as a new Kazakhstan. Even when uh, Astyalgo was speaking before, it, this all sounded to me as if we've been there before. And in fact, we've been there before. We've been there before in terms of the protests. We've been, ter- we've been there in terms of the grievances behind the protests, but we've also been there in terms of the crisis management of the, of the Kazakhstani government. So it is an entire deja vu, which, which tells me two things. The first one, and obviously they unfortunately both negative for Kazakhstan and the Kazakhstani people in general. The first is that uh, Kazakhstan is a petrostate because especially within the oil sector, energy sector in particular, uh, labor relations, production relations are now enter a phase of irreversible crisis. So unless some significant change is brought up in the way in which the largesse, the, the Kazakhstan largesse is managed by the elite, but also it's the way in which it's the industry itself is implemented, operationalized within and beyond labor relations. I think that there is no way way back. I mean, this is such a significant part of the economy, which requires such significant amount of change that this is a a, a chronic issue now. And so, the, the, the current model of Kazakhstan energy resource management, the one that was established in Nazarbayev era, in that sense, to me, it, it has failed. And it's not not just now in the last last decade, but we've seen that now the repetition of grievances, the return to people on the square, the fact that, you know, since the Kazakhstani government, both before and after 2019, has completely dismantled the trade union system, has led these people to have to become agent of their own labor. So they are, they, they express, the workers are expressing the grievances themselves. I mean, the, the, the wholesale import of neoliberal labor relation in the sector is something which has been happening for 30 years now. So I think that that model of energy, energy state, petrol state has failed. The second point that, that you know, listening to Astiele, reading what's happening in, in, in Kazakhstan, it makes me think that there is no such thing as a new Kazakhstan. Uh, because what we've seen the last 12 months, you know, ever since this moniker was, was forged, is a, a very inward-looking regime. A, a regime that spent the last year only managing the elite, making sure that the people that were close to the former president were would be marginalized, uh, appointing these missing people that had some kind of regime with another violent power system, and that was executed fairly surgically with three uh, votes. I mean, the, 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 the constitutional referendum, the presidential election, and uh, less than a month ago, the parliamentary election. So now we have uh, an elite that is entirely and exclusively uh, accountable to Tokayev. That's the only novelty, though. The policies have not changed. The, the structure of the political landscape will not be modified. The, the way in which the state interacts with its citizens, you know, that, this is the, the, the idea of the listening state is gone. And in that sense, it seemed to me that we've seen uh, the same Kazakhstan just with a new boss, which in fact is not even that new because it's been there since the 1990s. So the, the, this idea that you can sort of uh, transform the country without really doing it, any kind of significant change, heavy lifting as well, is becoming very, very much, uh, very much visible now. And the fact that these grievances return 
and the state responds always in the same time, it makes me think that there is no novelty. And it doesn't really matter if you say you're new. Everyone can see that it's not really new. Uh-huh. Uh, so do you have any follow-up to that? Any thoughts on what Luca was just saying? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I really like the uh, uh, the, the the two things that uh, uh, Luca said that I wanted to uh, expand the idea is that uh, the model of resource uh, management, but we can also talk about the model of labor management. I think this is very important as well because it enables the government to be in denial of the whole extraction and the situation in which the population is actually put into. Um, I mean, the uh, bloody events uh, of the uh, January events of 2022 have shown that the majority of population, actually, if you take a look at the mean salary, uh, only gets uh, 50,000 tenge, which is uh, an, an extremely, extremely small amount and it's impossible to survive with this money not not only in the capital and big cities but even in small towns uh, it's it's very difficult uh, to survive considering all the expenses including the basic utilities uh, so and in addition to that uh, for the oil workers uh, what has been done is that since the um, uh, most of the uh, let's say big com- the commanding heights of economy let's say uh, is in the hands of uh, the state or international investors uh, the uh, workers experience a lot of precarity because a lot of contracts um, uh, it, it seems like there are secure contracts if you are able to work for state institutions or those companies national companies that are affiliated with state institutions uh, like Cosmona Gas. Ozean Gas is the uh, subsidiary of Cosmon Gas. And as a result of that, Ozean Gas, for example, has its own uh, servicing company. And in order to uh, support and create uh, employment, uh, they are basically giving some very minor uh, services and jobs to other companies that are much smaller. Um, And so the other workers who did not manage to get this very nice labor spots, they end up working in very poor conditions, uh, relatively smaller salaries. So, for example, if you're working for uh, Uzeimola Gas, your salary would be like one million and you have all kinds of benefits. You can send the kids to various um, uh, camps and stuff like this. Um, and the workers in these particular smaller companies, they not only get the uh, smaller salaries, but also uh, their contracts are very predatory, uh, where they cannot really leave, they cannot take vacation, they receive much much smaller uh, salaries, and uh, they have to find jobs. When one contract, when one company loses contract, they have to basically go to another company and. Uh, look for, uh, take whatever job that comes their way. And so that's part of the reason why the workers that came over were so much against the proposal of Cosmona Gas uh, to basically transition to another company because that's not going to solve their problem. A year from now, when there is another bid, they will then uh, be in the same situation. And it also explains why workers from uh, the company that won the bid, Kesby, we're also supporting the uh, Berali Mangastao company, the, the workers that were actually protesting, because they, they, they all understand that they're in the same condition. So there has to be a kind of a systemic decision over the model of labor management where people get very transparent, at least uh, transparent and equal opportunities for labor that is done 
with the same quality or for uh, different by different companies, but of the same quality. Uh, we unfortunately don't really have that, and it's really kind of a wild market out there uh, that uh, really kind of divides the labor uh, with co-opts the labor, certain labor uh, who manage to get positions in national companies versus those who are outside. Um, and that really, really establishes uh, awful conditions. Another thing that I wanted to, to talk about is uh, the new Kazakhstan that Luca mentioned, that it's actually a fake notion. And I think it has been, uh, I mean, many people recognize that new Kazakhstan doesn't exist uh, after the way government handled January protesters, uh, where torture, violence, uh, death uh, has been a regular and a natural thing. So that's crisis management technique that uses law enforcement, um, kind of fear tactic, uh, pressure uh, is is nothing new, uh, especially for uh, districts uh, in uh, Western Kazakhstan that has experienced and practiced um, the uh, uh, strikes for quite a long time and and not only strikes but uh, forms of public organization to to claim to to basically put the claims out in the table it was so surprising to see um, how for example the government workers actually reacted to the strikes uh, pointing them out as uh, or pre- presenting them as kind of lazy people as uh, people who do receive a lot of money and uh, why are they actually protesting because uh, their salary is relatively high and unfortunately this is not very um, th- this tactic of divide and rule is not going to actually again solve uh, or do, do anything well for the region so instead of actually uh, conducting in kind of systematic uh, systematic uh, changes and reforms in, in labor management and labor regist- le- uh, regulations, uh, they prefer to basically demonize the workers uh, uh, and present them as uh, people who are uh, who have very big ambition and they are too lazy to do something about it. Especially since Cosmonogas offered them equal conditions uh, as before. So um, I think it's very important to to understand that the what the government is trying to do, and uh, it all is part of this crisis management management technique that uh, Luca just pointed out. Thank you. Uh, Luca, you know, you had mentioned that they dismantled the unions. And if we go back to Jano Zen, the tragedy in December 2011, you know, it's been more than 11 years, and it'll be 12 at the end of this year. Uh, they, all right, the government did dismantle the unions, but they, they just don't seem to be able to resolve this issue. I mean, it goes on and on and on. What are what are some of the reasons you think that this, this issue it just keeps hanging out there? I mean, it, it seems like there's no never a resolution that satisfies anybody no i think that this is something which we've seen across central asia really where the management of resources currently is understood only as a process that should work for the elite rather than from the people widely understood and you know i can give an example you know the, the fact that you have workers in janosian going you know and protesting on the street a regular intervals, really, that this year, last year, a few more times in, in, in the late Nazarbayev era, it tells you that the grievances that they have they are never addressed. The structure of production has not been changed. It's a region that 
that is suffering dramatically, the decline of the industry is a region where there are entire families that for generations have been exclusively involved in the energy industry, and now they're seeing this industry being dismantled and sort of by the, the, the transformation of the economy, but also by the fact that is now Kazakhstani oil oil sector is uh, neoliberal. It's, it's a neoliberal instrument in, in, in the hands of the government. But also, you know, the, the region has got serious environmental issues. It's got serious unemployment issues, and it's got it is very poorly managed at local level. So. It's, and it's also very far away. And this is not, I mean, from the center, it's not a region where I can specialize in all this economic sector because of the geography and the orography of the place. So, uh, it's been left out. It's been left out of, of the development of, of Kazakhstan. And, uh, which, uh, but see, there is a repeated failure by Nazarbayev, Tokayev, even in the years of the, you know, the, the tandem, if you want to call it 2019, 2022. They never intervened. They never intervened to have a, a serious plan or transformation of uh, the economy of the, of the Western Kazakhstan Oblast. Uh, obviously, and, and by any chance, even the other regions, you know, like local politics in Kazakhstan, it's, it's, it's not of any use for the government. So the, the, this idea that the workers should not really interfere with the process that makes the government richer and the people at large should not really benefit for the very substantive reserves that the government gets by exporting this oil, the uranium, or the kind of minerals Kazakhstan is so rich of, is something which will continue to, to pop up in any kind of grievances. I mean, obviously, the oil workers in Western Kazakhstan have now an established way of protesting and making the grievances heard. They go onto the street, you know, this time they even travel to Astana. They must have been exasperated. But I am sure that you know that there is a significant, a significant the proliferation of micro protests and micro, uh, if you want, little sort of fights that emerge in uh, in Western Kazakhstan for very localized issues. But you only need to have a look at the local papers. The local papers they always report some kind of uh, minor demonstration or uh, local fight to to change one, one, one or the other issue. So uh, there is an issue of marginalization, not just geographically or culturally, but actually socially and economically of Western Kazakhstan. And it's something which is problematic because that's a region that contributes more significantly to the economy. So it's the persistence of these problems and the government's sustained failure in addressing them that has not changed the... the does not alter the balance of the situation. So uh, there is a disenfranchising. The people feel disenfranchised. And uh, But obviously, again, all it matters here is who runs the, the, who runs the, the sovereign wealth fund, who makes the money out of it, how the, the big families in Astana and in Kazakhstan budget commu- business community uh, prosper on the back of, of the energy largesse. So there is this attachment between, if you want, the big oil politics and localized oil politics, which are just not just limited to the oil, come to the, to the labor, but to the wider population in general, that are disconnected. 
Now, how long this can go on? Well, Central Asia obviously teaches some harsh lesson here. We've got the same dynamic at play in Turkmenistan. It's been like that for 25 years now and has not been changed. Well, Kazakhstan is a different country. There is a different cultural process. There is a, diff- it's a different landscape. Is this sustainable? Well, if these protests stay localized, the government will not intervene. But how how much of this can go on? I mean, how often can this protest be uh, be repeated without having seen another kind of large-scale uh, sort of crisis erupting in, in Kazakhstan? Uh, the, the problem is always the same. To me, if there is another serious intervention in the way in which Central Asia, in this case Kazakhstan's energy, is understood and is put into serious policy making, well, we will see this happening over and over again. And the fact that you have a, a supposedly new regime reactly, reacting exactly the same way the old regime did, so, you know, shutting down the internet, uh, all that kind of repressive uh, playbook, well, it seemed to me that not only they have not understood the problem, they also have not understood how to solve the problem. So let's go to you. I mean, I, I... Uh, endlessly curious about this whole thing. Now, I, I can understand that the oil workers have pretty much a legitimate grievance here. It, it would be fair to say that, that the new city of Astana was built from the oil money that they got from Western Kazakhstan. And yes, yeah, anyone that drives through Western Kazakhstan will see it's kind of a, you know, uh, still poverty-stricken, underdeveloped area uh, in Kazakhstan. And these strikes keep coming up and up again, you know, and this kind of echoes the question I asked Luca, but what is the problem with trying to develop some kind of policy um, to deal with this? I mean, we had, uh, I think it was the deputy prime minister of Kazakhstan who almost echoed something Nazarbayev said a few years ago. He, when the oil workers were outside the energy ministry, he just basically said, what's their problem? You know, that's just the way it goes. Why do we have to give them work? And it reminded me of Nazarbayev saying, why do these people want their, their loans forgiven? Let them buy two cows and, and, you know, get milk or something like that and sell that and why are they asking the government for money so that's it you know what what is what is the problem with developing a policy for these workers out there and not in failure to to see that they have legitimate grievances well I, it's a good, great question and i think the um, answer lies in the structure of uh, political economy in kazakhstan um, the problem why uh, we consistently over the years cannot necessarily resolve uh, the problem uh, of not only oil workers, but uh, as Luca pointed out, a kind of a larger uh, model of resource management that benefits the elites is because elites, unfortunately, are in charge or the financial industrial groups are, are actually in charge of the decision-making process. Uh, not only decision-making, informal decision-making process, but also very frequently formal decision-making process. So, for example, these companies actually uh, offer the legal drafts, uh, uh, so it's not necessarily written uh, by our deputies. Our deputies uh, frequently read the drafts that were presented by lobbyists of these companies. Uh, we also know that uh, some deputies, for example, uh, openly lobby uh, interests of uh, different financial groups, uh, uh, either because uh, they are affiliated with them or because uh, they find that. Uh, uh, expedient at this particular moment. Uh, and so that's why uh, the regular people, they don't necessarily have the opportunities to uh, influence the um, uh, political process uh, outside 
outside elections and even during elections. And I think this is what has been especially devastating to many observers, uh, especially at home in Kazakhstan, is that uh, neither the constitutional referendum, presidential or parliamentary elections went in, in any different way. They were all conducted in the same manner, and uh, we cannot. And that actually uh, very much exposed the fakeness of this uh, new Kazakhstan, because there was nothing new. The uh, even though the independent independents were uh, uh, eligible to run, uh, unfortunately there were so many violations uh, uh, that basically none of them ended up in the final lists uh, and in the parliamentary elections uh, in the in, uh, in the in the parliament. Uh, so for many people, um, they feel that there is absolutely no way, no institution, uh, no person to speak on their behalf, no political party. And as a result of that, the only way that they can actually express their opinion is through protests and pickets, uh, either individual, because only individual pickets are now uh, allowed, or basically to to allow, uh, or, or through the mass protests and strikes. Uh, and in that sense, the uh, labor management uh, model can change only if the strikes are massive. Uh, and I think Zhen uh, people who uh, the oil workers in Chernozin understand that uh, that if they suspend production, if uh, they, for example, stop working for a certain amount of time, days, and so on, uh, then they they attract attention. Then it becomes a problem. And uh, as you can see here, in this case, uh, they didn't go to Kazmona Gas, uh, who is uh, uh, basically who organized the bid, a company which organized the bid and uh, uh, hired their uh, rivals. Uh, they went directly to the Ministry of Energy because they know that the Ministry of Energy will be able to solve their problem by either increasing the volume, uh, as they've done before last year, and giving more orders to Ozean Monegas. And so the workers uh, receive not only compensations, but salaries and relative stability, but only for a year. Or... Um, uh, they, as, as they hoped for, um, the Ministry of Energy can potentially uh, assist them in employment. Uh, so that's why there is, um, yeah, there, there, it's, it's a very kind of pessimistic and uh, negative outlook uh, why there, we don't necessarily see the policy reform. Because again, it's, it's very much hijacked by uh, special interests, uh, which unfortunately lie too close uh, to the regime in power. Luca. You know, it's a uh, DOXA society, for instance, has this protest tracker. And, and it's, it's curious that the number of protests, even among oil workers in Kazakhstan, but, but generally among workers in Kazakhstan, has, has increased substantially since Takayev came in. Any thoughts on why that might be true? I mean, are they just sick of this and, and they're finally ready to break? Or they see that he's him being the president now marks some transition point and now's the time to make a move? No, I would say that the number of protests had intensified and became more frequent because the situation is becoming unbearable. I think that uh, since the governance has not changed, since the state continues to see the oil industry and the general economy you know, more widely just as a way to get in reach, uh, I think that the condition now have changed because you no longer have the oil boom, oil high prices, or prior, prior decades. So uh, you, you have a significant, you know, as I said, I mentioned before, deterioration of living standards in Kazakhstan. Uh, the Nazarbayev dream is over. 
and uh, you, I mean, you could see it when you visit. Uh, beyond the big cities, the, 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 there is a general sense of decay. And uh, so to me, this becomes obviously even amplified when you go to the Western region, which is, is probably one of the most, well, experiencing the harshest crisis. So I think that the, the, there is the correlation is between the deterioration of the economic standards of the country and the deterioration and the, the, the fact that these these workers would like the, their voice to be heard. You know, and I said mentioned before the fact that now understand that this is the state that deals with the grievances. So they bypass completely the companies and went straight to the ministry to ministry, to ministry of, of, of energy. And uh, which which tells you that there is in the mind of the people the, the, the attribution of responsibility to state structures. So the, the, there is not intermediaries who you know who have been uh, you know say well this is your because of the company blah 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 or because it is because of the state. So in that sense, this is an indication of the maturity of the Kazakhstani people at large or the oil sector in particular that they they recognize that is the state that should fix their the issues. So I think that this is this is the reason why those. I mean, had we had this podcast, you know, fifteen, sixteen years ago, we would have talked of a very different economy. The economy was doing very, you know, very differently. Now, obviously, you have ten years of policy immobility because the president should have gone and did a, and did a, and did a, and did a resign. So you know, this protracted long long goodbye that. Uh, sort of throws any kind of, of significant decision making, and then you at the start of what has been a particularly troublesome presidency. Uh, he came in; people did not, did not recognize Sokolov legitimate because he continued to, under, to understand the votes just as as a if you want as a fictional form of democracy. And then, of course, you had the big event of January twenty twenty two, which. Interestingly, and maybe us as a community of scholars should have put more, this more center, started as a set of economic grievances not being heard by the government. So 22, then it became about the, the you know, the, the elite coup, or, you know, if you want, the, the artists protesting in, 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 in Almaty or what you want. But I'll, at the beginning, it was an issue about living standard and price of LPG in Western Kazakhstan. So it was something very similar to what we saw, you know, this week, which means that they have done nothing to address these issues. There has not been no uh, sensitivity in terms of addressing these grievances first. All they care about it is to purge in the elite, bringing their men in, and actually making sure that the regime is now strong enough to keep doing what they were doing. So if this is a sign of novelty, well, I'm not really sure. But to me, that's why. So there is an attributional responsibility, but also the fact that the people expected more. I mean, the, the new Kazakhstan idea is copied from the new Uzbekistan idea. You know, that, but the new Uzbekistan actually had something new. Maybe because the politics before were so bad that just unfreezing a few processes were actually felt by the people as, as a signal that something were changing. But, you know... Uh, in Kazakhstan, I don't really see this kind of... I see continuity. I see continuity be, between before 20, 19th of March 2019 and after. I see no, no, no change at all. 
If you change the actors, but the place stays the same, well, it's the same play, isn't it? So in, 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 in that sense, it's clear to me that the people are now recognize that there is responsibility by the regime in failing to address what are significant economic issues. And that's, that's why they go to the streets, because it's becoming unbearable. And unfortunately, it's exactly like that. I just would like to add something, Bruce, if I can. Yes, please. It's, it's just that um, uh, the parallel with the uh, bloody January were also um, uh, were too significant. Uh, and that's because if last year, for example, I remember government uh, uh, set the price cap for the LPG, but it, the price caps only worked for a year. And they've managed to extend it and extend it. But now, uh, since, um, since uh, diesel and uh, other types of fuels are uh, important uh, for the agricultural workers especially, it created strong shortages in the market. And with the strong shortages in the market, the prices for uh, fuel went up. So when the Janauzian workers came out, uh, they also came out kind of in the same environment of growing prices and when the prices for fuel go up obviously that means and everyone understands that in Kazakhstan that all the prices will go up automatically and it's already unbearable and I totally agree with uh, uh, Lucas um, opinion that indeed the situation and the conditions became unbearable in many different ways not only for example the the prices for the real estate uh, but the prices for regular food for example the inflation became so high that uh, and unfortunately the salaries in Kazakhstan are not indexed with inflation not even with official inflation um, and so people are on their own receiving the same salaries for years while inflation is just uh, skyrocketing um, and so uh, the prices of food, for example, uh, tripled. Uh, and uh, now, for example, if you want to go to the store, I mean, people always complain that uh, for the same amount of money, they're able to buy one third of, of the basket uh, that was available to them a year and a half ago, for example, or two years ago. And so it really is a difficult condition uh, for many people. And even though government is trying to increase, for example, uh, salaries for teachers uh, for uh, and, and the pensions, uh, the increment is, is so small that uh, people are actually not even believing in the validity of this type of actions, uh, because even with the increased prices and in indexed salaries, for example, they also know that prices will also automatically go up. Uh, so it's it's a really a relatively uh, vicious circle uh, that the government also needs to revise, because again, the the situation with uh, the fuel prices has not been reformed, and it also increased the tensions, I guess. And so when Janauzin uh, workers came out, uh, people also came out in Uralsk, for example, in Ural and uh, in Atarao. And in Atarao, both of these places had very different uh, um, grievances. Uh, for example, Atarao has been covered uh, in smoke for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, so people were basically sick and tired of the mismanagement uh, at in Western Kazakhstan, in, in different areas, but cumulatively uh, all related to the quality of living. No, great, thank you. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the show, but, but these, these points that you were making, both you and Luca, I think are really significant because you know the, we know that the government treats political protests differently than they treat labor demonstrations and labor strikes, right? You, you can strike for higher wages, that's okay, uh, and sit out there for a long time, but you can't come out uh, as an opposition party or opposition group and criticize the government, yet 
labor protests as they continue after two or three weeks. They start out as we want more money, we want better benefits, and then when they don't get that right away and they're still out uh, protesting, they start to grumble about local officials and their shortcomings, and then it's provincial officials, and then it's government officials. Um, so, so I'm really curious. You know, we, they permit the the labor demonstrations, but not the political protests, and yet the labor demonstrations, as you mentioned, develop into political protests. So what what is the government, you know, the, how, do you, how do you view the government's policy on this? It seems like a, a failure to, you know, on the one hand say, we're not going to let Jean Balat Mamai and his group register, and we're going to tell him he can't speak anymore in public for six years. Uh, and at the same time, allow the labor protests, labor demonstrations to go on, knowing that if they go on for several weeks, they're going to become anti-government protests. So your thoughts on that or any last comments that you wanted to make about this issue? I'll start with you, Luca. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that obviously there is, as you said, there's a clear separation between campaigning or protesting for political rights or campaigning or protesting for a better a better life you know, or better labor conditions. So the problem with trans- translating economic grievances into wider demand for wider reforms is that there is no such thing as an opposition who could translate these grievances into a political agenda because the government had been extremely successful in pretty much obliterating any oppositional force from the Kazakhstani the Kazakhstani landscape i mean the the, the, the parliament is uh, you know it's multi-party but only if you believe that is so the reality is that those five parties are five fingers of the same or the same end, which you know, is Tokayev said. So to, to me, uh, and it's another trend which you see across Central Asia, replicated in Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and so forth. So I don't really think there is anyone who can become the political champion of the rights of those those workers. And I mean, and again, the fact that trade unions can be so heavily uh, crushed by the government, and now that this uh, the oil workers are becoming self-representative, sort of almost itemized individual actors, you know, as if they were striking as part of a gig economy, though they are collective workers. It, it shows that the government has been very successful in also crushing that kind of organized labor. Uh, you know, this this is uh, a more repressive Kazakhstan. You saw it, you know, you mentioned people have been sort of given suspended sentences. There are journalists given 15 days of of detention for just saying saying the truth. Uh, This has been intensified very much so after the pandemic, but even more so after the the 2022 events. So I I would say that there is a tie, the possibility for confrontation, but I think that we will see that, that we will hear about these protests more and more but I don't really think that there is a possibility of, of having or seeing the rise of a political movement that embodies, champions these instances and formulates a wider agenda that the people of Kazakhstan can coalesce in. That wasn't certainly the case in January 22. Whatever my colleagues think, I don't. I don't think that was the case. But I, I would say that the landscape has not changed. This government has been really successful in the in their agenda of retaining this monopoly over the, 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 the conversation in Kazakhstan. It was seen happening in social media, the economic sphere, the political sphere, pretty much everything. Uh, 
So it is your, you, the question you and I, Bruce, have been asking about Turkmenistan. How long can this go on? And obviously, it can go on for, for a long time uh, because I don't really. I don't. I mean, and that's my last point before I give it back to Asel. Like there was so much expectation about what a post-Nazarbayev order could do, and this expectation had been disappointed on a daily basis. We no longer talk about policy. We no longer talk about changes. We no longer talk about how the country can be reformed. All that we've been thinking about is making sure we have uh, a new set of deputies in the majlis. You change the constitution, Totokai can stay until the, the late 2020s. A bit of debate on whether or not Kazakhstan should be more vocally or less vocally pro-Ukraine or anti-Ukraine. That's all we got. But the, the, the crucial issues, how to organize the state after the president is gone, how to deal with the economy, how to plan for the post-oil economy, or even how to better manage the largesse that Kazakhstan has in the energy, but also in the extractive sector, the large. These are all topics that have disappeared completely, at least for where I stand. So the expectation, and, but, and these are crucial, because even if you have some kind of a more pluralist Kazakhstan, which you don't, you still need to have this conversation. This is the most important sector of the state, or the economy, and you still don't debate them. And the, the, the same attention that the Uzbek government has had vis-a-vis instigating some economic change, as I've never seen it happening in Kazakhstan. I had the rhetoric about multi-vector foreign policy, about the listening state, at some point even about uh, redistribution of wealth. They're gone. These are all things that they're gone. It took uh, the, the, the government of Uzbekistan six or seven years to lose the reform impetus, the, the energy. Kazakhstan, less than 12 months. So obviously, I mean, I'm always negative voice. I don't want to be like that. But I think that it is very disappointing, to say the least. No, great comment. Uh, Asel? Yeah, um, thank you so much. I just think that, uh, and I agree in that sense with uh, Luca, that uh, political protesters, they usually have a face. They usually have a person behind it. And as a result of that, uh, that face has a voice uh, that can attract people, that can potentially lead people, mobilize them. Um, and so obviously they are dangerous, uh, even if it is, a, for example, a single picketer um, that comes out in a central square, for example, with empty sheet of paper. Uh, that is still a potential person, a leader that uh, can mobilize uh, the people behind him or her. And so that's dangerous. Mm, uh, same, same thing goes for bloggers. And I think that's the reason why government is so intolerant to protests that can be personalized. But it enables, for example, massive uh, protests of against, for example, gender-based violence, uh, labor strikes, it allows for that because it doesn't really have a face. Uh, and because of that, it's uh, easier to control. And also it's easier to kind of frame these protests as uh, specific, specific people, for example, specific oil workers who have been too spoiled with their salaries that uh, they don't necessarily want to work for an alternative that government is offering them, for example, or uh, specific uh, women that have been so disgruntled uh, instead of having children uh, and raising children at home, uh, they have nothing else to do but to go, for example, and protests, uh, protest for their rights. So this type of 
impersonal, let's say, uh, protests uh, are not necessarily very antagonist, uh, are, are very dangerous uh, uh, to the regime. And they can be easily co-opted. Uh, they can be certainly framed. And uh, also government is able to silence their voices with alternative information fallout. Uh, so during this time, we've noticed, for example, during the Zhenaozian strikes, uh, we've noticed that so many deputies uh, in the new parliament uh, decided, uh, came up with uh, really awful ideas so that to distract uh, attention of people. It's not only uh, the idea that it appeared, the, the idea that uh, Kazakhstan should pay, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, uh, foreign uh, uh, women, uh, women that marry the foreigners, uh, the foreigners should pay this, the tax to the state for marrying local women. Uh, this idea was actually circulating even before that, before the Janazian strikes. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it, it really kind of took the attention. Uh, and I don't really remember the details, but at least uh, five different deputies came up with the really atrocious suggestions. Uh, and it was, again, the tactic uh, of the government to basically dissipate and divide attention of people away from the tragedy that was actually uh, happening in front of the Ministry of uh, Energy, where people were rounded up and taken to police stations. So... Uh, and I agree with Luca that uh, the un- depersonalized uh, protests uh, will probably continue, but the political opposition with the voice and the face and the personality will probably be uh, severely punished. And we have seen that even the former uh, Majlis member was actually uh, who wanted to come over and talk to the workers was arrested for 15 days. Uh, just because uh, the government was so much afraid, uh, or the regime, let's say, not the government only, but the regime was very much afraid that he may instigate uh, some kind of support behind him, as well as uh, bloggers such as Muhtar Tajan and uh, Jean-Blad Momai was also, as we know, the court uh, prohibited him from participating in any political political activities uh, for six and a half years. Uh, and uh, Tajan, Mukhtar Tajan was also uh, sentenced to uh, 15 days as well. So all of that implies that if you are uh, an unknown uh, politician, <laughs> uh, it would be easier for these people to engage uh, in kind of political action than uh, a person who has a recognized identity. And without the systematic reforms, I think this type of strikes and protests will continue. Great. Thank you. And, and I know we could talk a lot more about this, and, and I have a feeling we will be talking about this again probably pretty soon. But I do want to thank you, Asel, and thank you, Luca, for being on the program. Of course, a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, who's our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And on that note, uh, I will say goodbye and have a good week, and we will be back next week with more uh, on the Mitchell's podcast. Take care.